In professional sports, a franchise player is an athlete who is not simply the best player on their team, but one that the team can build their franchise around for the foreseeable future. To another edition of Franchise Players. I am your host, Desmond Johnson, here on Tobacco Road Sports Radio. You can catch us as well as other programs such as The Score with Brett Wiseman, The Pit Stop with James Wilson, uh, here on Tobacco Road Sports Radio.com or across our podcast network. Just search by the same name on Spotify, Google, Apple, Stitcher, Anchor, and much, much more. Have uh, JP Mundy and Jay Spivey in here with me. And I was just thinking back, guys, to uh, the Final Four, that UCLA uh, Gonzaga game where Jalen Suggs hits the, the the game winner at the very end. And I remember having a conversation on Twitter with Hayes Permar. Uh, Hayes had posted something basically on the lines of, I just had one of those, all, I'm all alone by myself watching a sporting event and yelled and jumped off my couch type moment. And I just replied same to him because that's literally what happened when Suggs hit that three. I jumped off my couch and started screaming and hollering by myself. So I thought that'd be a good topic uh, for us today to go back and think of some uh, some good memories of when a sports event happened during your life that caused you to jump up off your couch and scream and get caught up in the moment. And I'm going to let you guys go first before we're going to go around three times. We each picked three uh, that have happened during our lifetime. And I'm going to let you guys go round one first before I start with mine. So uh, either Jay or JP uh, can start us off. Go ahead, JP. Um. The first one that came to mind for me was uh, James Harrison's uh, 100-yard interception return in the 2009 Super Bowl. Ooh, that's um, a good one. Yeah, that's, that's, a good one. Right. that's a really good one. As a, as a Steelers fan, it was cool that they were in the Super Bowl again, you know, to start with. And I was by myself. It was just me and my dog. And, you know, the fact that I was already get gearing up for the halftime show that had Bruce Springsteen and the E Street Band, like I was already fired up. But when when he grabbed that that interception, returned it all the way, I, that that had me crazy. That's a really good. one. I remember thinking he was gonna like run out of steam, like fall down, because <laughs> like, that was like the longest hundred yard run like in NFL history. It feels like where some guys had multiple chances to tackle him. And they just couldn't bring him down. That was a good Super Bowl, too. That was a great Super Bowl. Yeah, that was a really good Super Bowl. Uh, came down to the I wire. So. Yeah, everything you want. <laughs> <in a> Super Bowl. <laughs> everything you want in a Super Bowl. You want a competitive game. You want a game that comes down to the wire. You had two uh, Hall of Fame or soon-to-be Hall of Fame quarterbacks going back and forth. So, yeah, and that is turned a out good one. We, we didn't know this at the time, but it turned out to be John Madden's last game on NBC. Wow, yeah, there you go. So, yeah, that, so that is a good one. So, we got uh, – uh, the the Harrison run, the, the thunderous run in the Super Bowl in the first half. Uh, Jay, what do you got for your first selection? I think mine's going to be what it was actually 1982, but it was 81 NFC Championship when Dwight Clark caught the pass in the back of the end zone from Joe Montana to beat the Cowboys. That's I mean, a good that one was, too. I mean, that was that was just electric. I think. I mean, you, we still highlight see highlights now, 40 years later, and it's still just as amazing now as it was 40 years ago. You know that kind of. Would you say that game kind of introduced the world to Joe Montana? Like he wasn't really Joe Montana until that game, right? Uh, like Joe yeah, Montana, the yeah, way we so, know him. I mean, I, I mean, it, 
it, it, it allowed him to get the mystique he started getting then, I would say. But, I mean, he yeah. was a – I mean, you know, they knew who he was at Notre Dame. I mean, he was a good quarterback at Notre Dame. But, you know, Jer- uh, Bill Walsh took a flyer on him when, when, when he drafted him, and I guess it was 78. And, uh, you know, I think he went in the third round that year. Yeah, it yeah. ended up being his legacy. Like, he was already probably the best quarterback in the league. But I think, I mean, when when kids today learn about Joe Montana, that's the highlight that they're going to show. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and it's kind of funny because whenever you see the highlight, you only see it from, like, the waist up. Like, it looks like Dwight Clark's jumping, like, five feet in the air. He didn't really get that high. <laughs> he didn't really get that high there. He just stretched. He was a tall man to begin with. Uh, but great catch, great throw by Joe to keep the play alive. Um I, it literally is. It literally is the couch. The catch. Yeah, yeah, yeah literally, it's uh, the catch. It's the catch. Uh, I've always wondered how Joe Montana was able to play football on, on legs that were so skinny. His legs yeah. are extremely skinny. <laughs> yeah. Well, I but, mean, just as an aside, I had a. I think I told you this a couple of months ago, but I got a chance to meet and interview him at the Crosby. God, it must have been over twenty years ago, oh, and yeah. it was the th- one of the thrills of my uh, experience of being a reporter in thirty years. <laughs> now I have a, I have a, I had, I had three, but I have a, kind of a tie. So really, it's an honorable mention, um, and I hate to even do it, but I got to put it in there. It's probably the greatest college basketball game I've ever watched: nineteen ninety two Duke versus Kentucky. Um, oh yeah, absolutely. I, I was literally, I think I was in 92. I was a freshman in high school. Me and a buddy were watching, uh, the elite eight at his house. Uh, we did not like Duke. Of course we were Carolina fans. His, his dad was a Duke fan. So his dad was watching the, the game on a separate TV on the other side of the house. And we were watching it in his room and every, like every five or 10 minutes, we would have to go and like talk trash to each other. And like poke our heads into the other room or whatever to see what was going on. And by the time they got to that overtime or whatever, and uh, Hill set up on the baseline to throw it in, we were just like, just don't let him get a clean look. Just don't let him just catch it clean. Because I think Leitner had a perfect game in that game, if I'm not mistaken. Oh, and he should have been amazing. And he should have been thrown out of it for the, the yes, he stomp been. to begin with. Yeah. So I think he went ten for ten from the line, ten for ten for the field. Uh, and he, once he caught that ball and he went into that little move, I was like, oh no. <laughs> and he hit that shot and it was so loud. And I still remember to this day, me and my friend, we were, we didn't make a sound. Like when it went in, our mouths were just wide open, just like staring at the TV and about a hard minute went by. No, even that long, maybe about 10 seconds went by and all of a sudden his bedroom door comes flying open and it's his dad and he just pokes his head in the room. He doesn't say anything. He just looks at us. And then he walked away and we were just like, oh man, like it was just, what can you say? Like Leitner was just one of those guys, best, one of the best college, well, probably the best college basketball player in my lifetime that I could think of. Uh, one of the top 10 greatest ever probably. So I, I got to put that up there as an honorable mention, even though I hate yes. that I got to give them any kind of shine. Whatsoever. I don't know that's necessarily <laughs> an honorable mention. I mean, I think a lot of people would probably, I think the majority of people would say that's so maybe the best college basketball game ever. That's how strong yeah. my list is. My list is strong mm-hmm. style. So and, and that's uh, one of those um, moments, sports moments that is, do you remember where you were when? Yeah. Uh, I so I, I remember. And, yeah. Oh, I, I remember. I remember that um, we had a, I was at a sorority formal with my girlfriend and all of a sudden the girls like in the middle of this thing, noticed that none of the guys were around and we were all <laughs> in the hotel bar watching this. So we had some very, very upset women. That's how I remember that day. <laughs> I mean, it was a good game. It was, it was, it was probably one of the best played college basketball games 
that I've seen in a long time. And to be honest, it kind of it was kind of like that UCLA Gonzaga game where it was back and forth. No one really took mm-hmm. control of it. Uh, really good action, good players, a lot on the well, line. Not only that does, but if you look about look at it, I mean, there were quite a few stars in that Kentucky Duke game too. Yeah, that's what's like Jamal Mashburn was on that Kentucky team. Uh, of course, you had you know Leitner and Hurley, Grant Hill. I mean, at that point, Duke was like the Beatles, like literally, like ESPN oh, yeah. just basically followed Duke around the whole year. And I think that's why I think that's where most of my hatred for Duke started to grow because during that like that was my eighth grade year, ninth grade year, and every girl, every girl was in love with Christian Leitner. Everyone. That was uh, I, I was a sophomore sophomore at Appalachian that year, and I came home for the weekend that that year. And my mom and dad and my aunt and I went to eat dinner, and I came back, and I it, I think it was maybe halftime, or I just started the second half when I got back, and you know it was just amazing to watch the rest of it. Oh, so you didn't see the stomp live or whatever because it happened. Oh, yeah, I, I saw it. I mean, I, I think I think it was on uh, like a. T- I mean, this is tw- you know obviously oh, like yeah, thirty yeah, yeah. years ago, so there wasn't big screen. There wasn't big screen TVs then, but I mean, it was on in the restaurant we were in. So if, if anyone else had did that, they would have been ejected from that game. If anyone did oh, that yeah, today, absolutely. they'd probably be suspended for a couple of games. I would oh, think. Absolutely, like, absolutely. He just he got a you know common foul <laughs> for stomping on a dude's chest. <laughs> it's hard. It's hard to believe it was twenty nine years ago. I know, like right? Gosh. Okay. So round two, uh, JP, what you got for uh, sports memories that made you jump off the couch? So I, I took it kind of literally where you said what it made you like you were alone or, you know, just with somebody else and yeah. it made you jump out. So, but I, 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 cause I, what sprang to mind. So this is my honorable mention and then I'll get to my real pick. Mm-hmm. I, I, I was thinking of Landon Donovan's, um, goal against Algeria and I think it was the 2010 World Cup okay um, um that but I was at work and I was with a bunch of people going you know watching in the common area going crazy so that that came to mind but I would have to say that um the one I another one I can remember jumping off and just screaming was um I think this is the 2005 AFC championship when uh, Jerome Bettis fumbled at the goal line, oh my god! And, and the Colts, <laughs> oh no. picked, the Colts picked it up and started to run, and Ben just got a fingertip right. on the guy's yep, ankle. Right. string, a shoestring, literal. And what what that did to me is that people don't understand is that Peyton Manning is my favorite football player of all time. I grew up with uh, with a picture of Terry Bradshaw over my bed. But Peyton Manning is just is, is my favorite all time um, player, and that forced me. If Bettis had gone in, that would have iced the game. And instead, I was yelling at. at I was again. I was by myself. I was just yelling at the television, screaming for a Pittsburgh defender to kill Peyton Manning. That's how <laughs> strong it was. That that's why I remember it so much. Oh my! I remember that too. That was a that was a wild sequence, um, and I remember thinking, "Man, they were shoestring away from just putting this out, you know, and for it to end like that." And then Bettis had a chance to redeem himself, like after that, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, so it kind of rewrote. They did, uh, you're right? Yeah, that's right. I forgot about yeah. That. So it kind of rewrote what we would have thought about Jerome Bettis, and then he ended up, you know. Uh, getting that ring and going off into retirement and that's right uh, having the storybook ending uh jay what do you have for 
your next oh, uh, entry oh, into this. Oh, pl- please indulge me on this one a little bit because I was not by myself for this one. I was in. Uh, <laughs> I was with. I was with twenty three thousand other people at the time, and I was there for all three days of this. So just indulge me here. But okay. 19, 1995 ACC men's basketball tournament. I was there for all. I was there for every game of that tournament. It's the oh, first wait, ACC. Wait, what, year, what year? What year? 1995. Oh no! <laughs> I, know, I, yeah, I know what I know what tournament this one was. I was there for every single game, every single play of this tournament. It was the first ACC tournament I'd ever been to in person, and it, was, it turned out to be the best one I ever went. To. I think I've been probably since then. I think I've probably been uh, ten or twelve of them, maybe something like that. And I've been uh, Greensboro, Washington, Charlotte, and Atlanta. So I've been to a bunch of them, but this one was the first one. And it turns out to be the, probably the best one that I've been to. It was not just one game, but three straight games by Randolph Childress and just an electric, which may not ever be taught by one performer in a tournament where I think he had 107 points or something like that. Yeah. In three, like games. In three games. Yeah. He, he was beat, cooking. He beat Duke, Virginia and Carolina. And it was just simply remarkable what he did. And, and you know, I, yeah, I was there with 23,000 other people, but, I mean, I just, I, I, I literally, after the game was over and they won, after they beat Carolina and won the championship, I literally just sat there in my chair at the Greensboro Coliseum and just started crying. I mean, because Wake Forest had been so bad for so long, and they finally won an ACC tournament for the first time in 33 years. Were you there with your dad? No, I was there by my, I, just, I, I got tickets from somebody, and I was there by myself the whole weekend. Wow. The, the, following year, the following year I went when they beat Georgia Tech in the championship, and I was there with my dad and a good friend of mine, Sam. I, but we, oh, uh, I was just going to say, I can Georgia, still, go, ahead, go ahead, go ahead. Yeah, when they beat Georgia Tech the following year, I was there with some other people, but the first year I was there by myself. I can still remember in my head Randolph Childress crossing over Jeff McInnes. Oh. And McKinnis falling down and Childress motioning for him to get up get <laughs> before up. <laughs> he shoots the three in his eye hole. And at that yeah. point, I was like, this dude is on another level this weekend. Like, this is this is yep. something else. <laughs> Y'all, I mean, I, I, I realize that Tim Duncan's probably the best player in Wake Forest history, and I love Tim Duncan. Don't get me wrong, but I revere Randall Childress. And to this day, every time I see him, I just like I almost melt because I just revere the guy. Yeah, yeah. He's one of my favorites, and, too. I, I've, always I said, I did a, I've always said that's my a, second team. I did a story on his uh, son oh, five or six years ago when he was at Wesleyan. And uh, Randolph just happened to be at the game, so I interviewed him too. And uh, it was it was hard for me. It was, it was very intimidating to talk to him eventually. But he's the nicest guy you ever want to meet. I um, you, you never trust a Wake Forest fan or somebody who says they're a Wake Forest fan who has Chris Paul or Josh Howard in their top three best deeks ever. Yeah. Because they're not, they're not there. Yep, they're not I agree. No, no way. It's done, real, real quick, I was going to say who you said. Ronnie Rogers. Ronnie Rogers. Oh, most, I love Ronnie. Ronnie Rogers love is Ronnie. the most important player in the history of Wake Forest basketball. What would it be like? Rogers, Childress, Duncan? Yeah. 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 Yeah, because yeah, I go back to like, you know, Muggsy Bogues and all those, like it, all the kids that are like, it, was, uh, it all started in like, you know, when Chris Paul was there. Nah, man, there was a whole decade before that, and really, there was decades well, that, before that. That of, was the first real re- big recruit that Dave Odom got when he first came to Wake was Rodney Rogers, and that yeah, yeah, JP's probably right. He was yeah. if he's not m- the most important, he was certainly the most important of Dave Odom's era there. And Rodney Rogers was a problem, like at Wake Forest. That was back in the day. I was talking about this the other day when the AC was just the the hard eight, but every mm-hmm. team felt like they had a star on it. So like you would sit there and watch that. Raycom Sports quadruple header that would come on Saturdays like halfway through the year where all eight teams were playing and you knew that 
Georgia Tech had Brian Oliver and yeah. uh, and whoever, and State had Chris Corciani and Wake had James Ford. You know what I mean? Like everybody had someone that you knew. And now I, I, I lost that feeling. I mean, I sit here and cover these uh, games in these leagues, and I don't feel that way anymore about like the no. ACC in terms of well, every team's got a guy. I mean, y'all, y'all, were, y'all were watching the league then. I mean, I, I mean I, Rodney Rogers was a big guy, and he was oh, yeah. such a gr- such a great athlete. He could literally jump out of the gym. He's kind of built like LeBron James a little bit. He might have been a little taller. Just a he, big he was dude. As a freshman. Yeah, I mean, he was, he, was, he was great. It's it's uh, you know sad what ended up happening to him. Sad, yeah, so sad. Yeah. Because uh, he 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 was a, he was a real one for sure. Um, I pull I love this call so much. I had to go pull it up on my phone. I'm gonna try to play it through the mic here. This is the first one I can think of as a kid. 1992, NLCS, Game Seven, Braves versus Pirates. No, oh, I'm just yeah. Gonna, I'm just gonna <laughs> play. I'm just gonna play it. It's, it's good. Uh, all right, all right. Sid Bream <laughs> is on second place, and uh, Cabrera is at the plate. Mm. Actually, literally, just got a shiver listening to that. <laughs> That's when you sent a tear to my eye, <laughs> dude. I, I think I was, I was pretty sure. I'm in '92, so it's still around that same area. I think freshman year, high school, eighth grade, somewhere in there. I remember waking up my parents, uh, who were only a wall away, uh, in my in my parents' house. You know, watching that game late. It's like 11:30 at night on like a weekday or something. And Sid Bream coming around that plate at seven miles an hour <laughs> to slot into home. And when he got home and they w- and they went safe, I went ballistic in my bedroom. And I, to this day, I don't remember. Back then, I was like a huge Braves fan just because they were the closest baseball team here. And I was really into baseball as a kid. My, my cousin played uh, for Clemson uh, back in the late 80s and ended up getting drafted by the Dodgers. And he made it to AAA and then he went overseas and all that. But... He never got up to the the majors, but he kind of got me into baseball for that little stretch. And the Braves with, you know, Terry Pendleton and David Justice and Dion and all those guys, they kind of got me, they got me hooked. So I would, I would watch them during the playoffs and that, that NLCS, uh, looking back on it, I was probably the last meaningful game the Pittsburgh Pirates have played in that I could oh, think that of. Pretty much, that pretty much ended their, <laughs> you, that pretty much ended their run. They, yeah. had, they had a great team. The Pirates Bear. had a great team during that stretch, and they had a. They had little head Barry Bonds. They had uh, a yeah. That was guy. before he <laughs> That was before. That was before he left for San Francisco. They had and Andy Van Flight. Barry Bonds would have made the Hall of Fame. Just Easily. off of that Pittsburgh career, correct? Easily. Yeah. Easily. Okay. So Easily. I just want to check because y'all are my baseball guys and I, I don't know enough to know, but I know that. What adds to that call? You never needed it. What adds to that call you just played is that it was Skip Carey doing the call instead of the mm-hmm. national broadcast. Yeah. And he, he was, I mean, he was Mr. Brave. And I remember that vividly. I was, uh, I was, I was a sophomore at Appalachian that year. And if y'all know the campus, have y'all, uh, there's a duck pond there. And, uh, the, I was in a dorm watching it with a friend of mine, and you know they won, and all of a sudden there was just this craziness going on. And I looked, everybody's jumping in the duck pond. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> because of the because of the Braves win. Because the Braves have won, yeah. But that was the year that I had to start checking people who would come up to afterwards and uh, who do you root for? I root for the Braves. Oh, really? Who's Bob Horner? Oh. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> people. Because well, they- I, I, and I admit I was a bandwagon guy. I jumped on the bandwagon once they really before they won anything. Uh, you know, they were just hot down here. They be, kind of became like the. The team to, to if you liked baseball and you're North Carolina, it was like you either could root for the Braves or you could root for really no one. There was no one really closer to this area geographically. And they had some stars. You know what I mean? Like, I, I really remember loving David Justice. And Dion was kind of what led me to the Braves because I was a fan of his for football, but knew he played two sports like Bo. So it made me want to check him out on the Braves. Well, really, the Yankees first and then the Braves and all that stuff. And that's kind of where I stuck, you know, with Atlanta. Was those uh, early, uh, you know, interactions with Deion Sanders and trying to follow him around as he was doing what he was doing? Uh, round three, as we hit uh, third base here, uh, JP, what you got? So, th- when I think of adult me <laughs> and going crazy, actually nobody in the room and me jumping off of a, a couch, um, it would be Jay Bruce's um, walk off home run in 2010 to clinch the NL central for the Cincinnati Reds. Mm. I mean, you're going to do that when it's been a while. And, um, you know, it doesn't matter to me that they went into the playoffs and you know, immediately got no hit by Roy Halladay, but, um, and law and got swept. But I, I will remember that as one of the most fun, um, sports moments, uh, that, I've, that I can recall, and it's it, it's amazing that I can't think about this, guys. Yeah, I can't think of anything that's made me jump off the couch since I started dabbling and working in sports. Why do you think that is? Do you think you've detached yourself from it, like on a personal level? I think a good I think a good reporter. I mean, uh, like when I, I started doing stuff around Wake Forest, and Wake Forest gave me a credential. I, I put away all of my fan stuff because I had season tickets to football and all this other stuff. And I was a, cause I, I wanted to, to watch what the whole thing from a 30,000 foot level and like a switch as much as I give you a hard time. I don't like, I used to hate Carolina and other teams, whatever. I don't anymore. Like I just watch the game and I really like, you know, their venues and going to the Dean Dome and I like all the history and I can it actually getting rid of those emotional attachments. Like I can't even watch the Steelers like I used to, which is actually good. Hmm. But, you know, they were my first love. And probably the Reds more relaxing. Too. Probably more relaxing yeah. on Sunday. I would, I would imagine. Now, Not stressful. I, I say all that to say that I have gotten very invested over the last three years with the Carolina Hurricanes. And that's nice because I started missing rooting for teams and the same yeah. thing even for Tennessee. Um, hmm. So I actually watched the Tennessee spring game Saturday. So that's good for – that's a good check that I'm getting back to normal. But for yeah. a while there, man, I, I, I could sit and watch any sports, no matter how dramatic, stone-faced. Hmm. See, and I'm the type where I, I try to go into it when I decided to go – you know, head first into this sports media world, I made a conscious effort to, to make sure that people knew where my fandom stood. And that meant that, you know, I could get 
shots from people that are ABCers or love from people that, that love Carolina or the Panthers or, or the Hornets or whatever it may be. But I decided very early on that I always felt that the ones that had a, had a team and were pretending not to root for that team while they were doing their sports stuff, it just came off as you know disingenuous to me if they had a team that they were still rooting for. Now, you're saying that you found a way to not really be attached to them anymore, which is different. I mean, but, more but, like the ones that were pretending like they weren't fans and still were, like diehards, right. you know, at their, and they're their nine to five. I always said that, you know, I'm not going to hide the fact that I'm a Tar Heel fan, but I also have to make sure that I can be impartial when it comes to, you know, Duke or NC State or whoever they're playing, that I can still report on them in a, you know, a factual manner and not have it come as a slant, unless we're joking around or something like that where, but here, where it's but obvious. But, but, Wake, but, but Wake Forest really helped me out um, because they went and intentionally burned down their basketball program. Was it intentional? I, I, <laughs> yeah, it was accidental. <laughs> no, no, it was completely intentional. And so and football was bad and, and I – and I saw what was happening with um, at the very beginning with the uh, with them burning down basketball. So they really helped things out there. And the the fact that I never ever covered Tennessee made everything else. I mean, saved me on on that kind of thing. And mm-hmm. I don't think I've ever hid that. Jay's the biggest homer in the triad. First of all, I want to agree with what JP said. I, although everybody knows who I like. I mean, I don't, I don't outwardly say it. I'm not going to say it publicly. I mean, but everyone knows who I like publicly. I mean, if you really get to know, you don't know who I like. I'm just not going to, I'm just not going to get all over the place going crazy over such and such teams. But yeah, I, I will say I'm more detached now with, Although I love the teams, I mean, I'm more attached with college games. It just allows me to enjoy them more than I used to because I just used to get so wrapped up. And, you know, there would be times I wouldn't even I wouldn't even turn the game on. I got so nervous watching them on TV or in person. It's, to me, I was able to control my emotions more in person than I was watching them on TV. But uh, for my last one, uh, it was uh, – I cannot, I cannot detach myself from this team at all. I, you know, everybody knows I love the Braves. Um, this was 2012. It was the Sunday night of Labor Day weekend and Chipper Jones hit a game winning home run to beat the Phillies in a packed house, which turned out to be, we didn't know at the time, obviously, but turned out to be Chipper Jones last home run as a brave before he retired later, later that season. Uh, he had a home run, won the game and the crowd went crazy. And, uh, you know, he is Mr. Brave. He played there for 20 years and retired as a brave. And it's just, it's one of those things we hardly ever see anymore. And, you know, I got like I think I told you guys I got a chance to meet him. He was doing a book tour here about four or five years ago, and uh, got a chance to meet and interview him. And I think he was a little surprised how much I, I knew about him, and because it was just myself and a TV reporter there, and you know, we got to ask him all the questions we pretty much wanted in a 10, 10 or fifteen minute period. And I think he was That's a little a surprised how much too. I knew about. Him. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, I appreciate that. Um, so yeah. I, yeah, it was it was just a thrill, and I was li- I, I, I'm in an apartment now, but I was living in a different apartment at the time, and this was nine years ago, about well, eight and a half years ago, whatever. And mm. I literally jumped on my couch, started screaming, started yelling. I'm sure everybody who lived around me are like, "What is going on upstairs or around here?" I'm sure, like, I was just stomping on the floor. I was going crazy. Man, there's nothing. There's no better feeling as a sports fan than to get like emotional over a game that you weren't prepared to get emotional over. You know what I mean? Like something happens that you didn't know was going to happen 
And it just it, it evokes something inside. You're just like deep down, like the sports fan, and it just kind of comes out. You kind of forget where you are, your well, surroundings, like everything. I, I love it. That's why I love well, sports. Well, I wrap myself in the Braves every night. I watch them literally every night. You know, this past Sunday when they had one hit in 14 innings, I mean, I kind of detached myself from that because there's not much. You, know, you, can't, yeah. you can't really control your emotions around that. But, you know, I, I literally wrap my, I mean, like, you know, Monday night, I mean, I watched them and they just kept blowing lead after blowing lead and blowing lead. And they finally won the game eight to seven over the Cubs. So, you know, you, you get so emotionally uh, involved with the team. You, just, you can't help but, you know, you get that heart pull, you know, you get those heartstrings pulled again for you. I, I'm going a, I'm to a bring us into home. I, actually, we could have split oh, this up man. into two different segments here. Uh, uh, some, here we go. Some, some honorable mentions before oh, I know I what, I know what his one. big one is. <laughs> I, I know what it is. Uh, some of the ones I jotted down that we just got to mention. 1993, the Chris Webber timeout. Uh, okay, awesome. Oh, yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. that's that's uh that was a huge one because i've never seen it happen before i've never seen it happen before that and and you I've probably never, never will since. Probably yeah, never it, was will just, again. it was just a weird sequence and at the time uh of course i'm a carolina fan but i was a huge fab five fan like people don't understand culturally how culturally, much i related to that yeah i loved the fab five they were everything i was about 1992 in terms of just being a young black kid growing up in <laughs> rural america and hip-hop is kind of you know, leaking into the mainstream. And they were one of the forefathers of doing that by just kind of hitting you over the head with the black socks and the baggy shorts and the bald heads and just the, the swagger and all of it. And of course they got to go through my team, Carolina to win when they just lost to Duke the year before. So it put me in a situation of who do you root for? And of course in the end, I'm rooting for Carolina and Dean and everything, but that was, that was a weird one. Um, 2005, the Rose bowl, USC, Texas. Oh, yeah. and, and it wasn't even, it wasn't even Vince Young's run at the end that made me jump. It was Reggie Bush in the middle of the game. You remember him breaking out on that yeah. run and him just tossing the football to, the, sure. to the dude? Well, just the game in general. That game was amazing. <laughs> yeah, it was probably the best college football game ever. Like it, That game was just back and forth. Loved it, loved it, loved it. Um, I wrote down 1999 Women's World Cup final. The oh, yeah. shootout. Yeah, that made me absolutely. Jump. Uh, that, that was a good one. Uh, that put the women really on a bigger pedestal than the men in my opinion they've never left it um they're they're the best soccer team in the world <laughs> you mean uh, the man who can't qualify for the, yeah. <laughs> the Olympics or the World Cup? i can't name a single dude on the men's team but i can give you probably three or four that either are on the women's team or were on it recently um and then it came down to my final two and i decided between these the loser was 2003 panthers versus rams nfc yeah. divisional playoffs steve smith 65 yard Double overtime, walk-off touchdown. I was living in a small apartment with my now wife. We were uh, had been dating for a couple of years. She wasn't there. I was there by myself. It was a top-floor apartment. And we had just came back from break because they were going to a double overtime or whatever. And um, they, Or they went to double overtime. Panthers call a timeout. We come back from break. And the very next play, like the first play of double overtime, Jake hits him on this uh, basically like a go-route. And Steve Smith just outruns the Rams secondary. And I start screaming at the top of my lungs for about a hard five minutes, stomping on the floor, jumping and stuff. My neighbors downstairs had to come up and make sure I was okay. Uh, but that was probably one of the, the loudest ones. But uh, for me, the most emotional one, the one that got me up, uh, 2017, Elite Eight, North Carolina versus Kentucky, the, the Luke May shot that took Carolina back to the Final Four, back to back, and I actually found the call, and we're going to play it right here. Oh, impossible shot. 
I didn't know the touch music was on it. <laughs> we got Celine Dion on that too? I didn't know that was going to be there. Wow. Yeah, the Titanic is pretty apt. Titanic just sank. The Titanic literally just sank. Not that year, baby. <laughs> I didn't know they added the Titanic music. That actually made me a little shiver a little more, <laughs> add a little more to it. But that, that shot was like a whole story because in the year before, I actually had that written down here too. I just didn't want to say it out loud. 2016, UNC versus Villanova. Uh, Marcus Page hits the double clutch three, ties the game. You think we're going to overtime. Villanova comes down. Chris Jenkins hits a shot out of his ass, a bank shot for three, wins the game, game over, time expires, and I cried. I cried like a baby. <laughs> like, I mean, I, I've only cried three times because of sports moments, and all three of those times had to do with that team. Uh, that moment, and then the Luke May shot just sent me, just made me a blubbering idiot for like 30 minutes, and then... <laughs> the Carolina Gonzaga final was the same way. So it, that, was a, Desmond, that was a long road. Desmond, can I add one? Yeah. Uh, well, yeah, JP was talking a few minutes ago you know, about, you know, being, you know, especially with high school sports kind of detaching yourself. You almost have to when you're covering a game or a team. But, you know, we've all covered so many teams and so many games. And I, in 2017, I got to cover North Davidson softball almost every game uh, during the playoffs. And uh, my, yeah. everybody knows the legendary Mike Lambrose, who was the coach at North Davidson for years and years and years. And that whole year, you know, he had, he had been diagnosed with cancer that September before. Oh, yeah, and, that's right. And he had pancreatic cancer and just everybody knew he was going to die. And, but he fought through it and went through chemo. And, and yeah, every single day of practice, every single game they had, he had chemo and he came back and, you know, just worked and you know, came through and just, you know, just, un it was just kind of withering away, so to speak. So I covered them in the regional finals and the, uh, the state championship that year. And it turned out the state championship was at UNCG and, uh, they won the state championship, swept, swept the series and they won on a Saturday afternoon on a really hot day at UCG in the first part of first part of June. And they won the game and I, I literally just was sitting in my chair in the press box and I was with uh Mike Dupre who's the sports editor in Lexington. He and I were sitting right next to each other. We were like we we're just like sobbing because mm. I mean we knew I mean I mean everybody knew he was gonna die and he turned out turned out he died about Oh, three or four months later, he ended up dying. So, I mean, but it's yeah. just, and, and then to talk to him after and just see the love that he got with thousands of people on the field, just hugging him and congratulating him and the, the, the tears in his eyes and the, and his family It's just, and you can't help, but just not just, if you don't have emotion and with something like that, you just don't have any emotion at all. I, I got one more that we'll leave it with here because we could have did a whole show just on this topic. I just looked over, saw how long I we've gone. <laughs> Go I ahead and get yours one. in real quick. Go ahead and get yours in. When the, the, um, it was that day um, a few weeks ago where um, the University of Cincinnati had their press conference to introduce <laughs> oh, Miller. Geez. That got me up. <laughs> 34 minutes. I, uh, we almost made it. We almost made it. I'm going to let me get mine in real quick. Uh, Go ahead. And this, this will be one. Um, that <laughs> I just thought of off the top of my head, but it was probably <laughs> it was probably one of the most emotional moments when you look back on it now and for what it meant. Uh, the 2019 Masters at the very oh, absolutely. end, after Tiger Woods had won, and he's with his son, and he's you know he's got the red yeah. on and everything, and he and he's fist pumping, and he's having that moment with his son, and it's identical to that moment he had with his dad 20 years before, and then the walk through the galley when they were walking through the gallery and like. 
you just see all of these people screaming at the top of their lungs. They're just so happy and they're pumping their fists and high fiving and like they're just cheering them on. And like it, it, it's just like this moment of euphoria. And that was yeah, literally was, the last public sporting event we really had before COVID. Yeah, I was a, I was a, I was at at Wilmington on spring break <laughs> that week on vacation, and I was in a restaurant eating lunch with my dad, and uh, the place was packed, and they had the big screen TVs on, and that. After he won, this, after he won, he got a standing ovation. This it was just a sandwich restaurant. Yeah, it was and, just crazy. He, he got a standing standing room standing ovation in, in a restaurant like that in Wilmington. My mom and dad were watching the Masters Sunday because Tiger was in the lead. Like you know what I mean? They don't care about golf. They don't care yeah. about any of that stuff. But they heard that Tiger was in the lead, and uh, I remember I was taking uh, my wife on a, a wedding anniversary trip uh that weekend and they had it on as we were dropping the kids off and i was like what are y'all doing he's like oh we're watching the the masters we heard tiger was in the lead and i was just like wow like just that just shows you how big he was not to golf but to just sports in general you know like just an icon so like i said we could have went an hour and a half on this but uh this was good um we're gonna stop it right here we'll take a a quick break but uh, you're listening to franchise players on tobacco road sports radio in professional sports a franchise player is an athlete who is not simply the best player on their team, but one that the team can build their franchise around for the foreseeable future. And welcome back to Franchise Players. Of course, the biggest sporting thing that's going on in the state of North Carolina this uh, week is the NFL Draft, the 2021 NFL Draft. Our Carolina Panthers have the eighth selection uh, in this draft. And all this week, we've had uh, Panther heavy hitters on Franchise Players. Uh, stepping up to the plate right now, he is the beat writer for the Panthers for the uh, for Sports Illustrated, Skylar Callahan, uh, back on Franchise Players. What's going on, brother? Not much, man. It's an exciting week. It's finally here. I uh, get to finally uh, actually get to see who gets picked, where they go, and stu- and no more speculation. That's what I like most about it. So it's, it's going to be a lot of yeah. fun. Wild weekend up ahead. Yeah, absolutely. Now, normally when we have you on, uh, we love having you on uh, with your, your, your Panther insight. Normally we go dive right into Panther stuff, but I kind of wanted to zoom out for a second. And uh, and start this with just an overall look at the NFL draft and the top 10 in general and ask you some questions uh, regarding that. Uh, starting off, of course, the biggest thing everyone's talking about, San Francisco uh, giving up a whole lot of draft collateral to move up from 12 to number three. Uh, they had a press conference, I guess you could say, uh, the other day where basically they said they had five quarterbacks that they're looking at. Well, duh, there's five <laughs> quarterbacks at the, <laughs> the top of the round that everyone's looking at. So they didn't really give out a lot there. Who do you think that they're zeroing in on? Because I just find it really hard to believe that it's Mac Jones that they gave up all his collateral for to move up nine, st- uh, nine spots to number three. Who, who do you think it is? Yeah, I mean, it's it's definitely interesting because I, I never was a huge Mac Jones fan. And, you know, when you look at the numbers that he put up this past season and you compare it to last year's number one overall pick, Joe Burrow, I mean, you can kind of see why some teams are, are really high on Jones and thinking – you know, they both had a similar situation where they had a, a ton of weapons around them. So that was never really, you know, one thing that one guy had over the other. So I, I do see it, but th- Joe Burrow is a different quarterback. <laughs> like he <Yeah>. is more <laughs> athletic. He's got a better arm. I, I just think he's a more all around better quarterback. Thus, I think that's why he's going to have a better NFL career. 
As far as the 49ers go, you know, there's been a lot of talk, as you said, about Mac Jones and he being their guy. I don't buy it. I, I think it's down between Justin Fields and Trey Lance. And I think really over the last week or two, the, the Trey Lance train has really started to pick up some momentum. So hmm. I don't know. I, I don't really have too much insight on what they what I think they're going to do. But if I'm San Francisco and I'm picking out of those three, I'd probably go with Justin Fields. He's probably the most polished, the most ready quarterback of those three. But I do have a feeling Trey Lance just might be their guy. I don't buy the Mac, the Mac Jones talk at all. So do you think that they've given up on Jimmy Garoppolo? I mean, he the one year he was healthy, he led him to the Super Bowl. But do you think that was more yeah. of a, a cause of Shanahan's system than Garoppolo? Or do you think that he's pretty much done in San Francisco? Yeah, I think I think it's pretty much over for him in San Francisco, especially when we heard Shane comments the other day. <laughs> yeah, uh, he, he didn't know if he'd be alive on Sunday. So yeah, that, what a we, uh, what a weird answer! What a weird answer yeah. to that too. It's like I know that these GMs and coaches are they kind of pride themselves on not giving away anything in these press conferences. And right, we, I mean, you were part of a press conference last week with Scott Fitterer and Matt Rule, where they basically kind of did the same thing. And it, it felt like they, they only did the press conference to elevate the value of the pick they had. That, that's what it <laughs> felt like. <laughs> exactly. A lot of times it's a showcase. You know, they just want to come out here and say, like Carolina, for instance, they want to say, oh, yeah, we're really interested in the quarterback. But, you know, teams like Denver and, and you know, Minnesota, maybe New England, who may want a quarterback, they hear that thinking, okay, maybe these guys are serious and they want to trade up ahead of Carolina so they can get their guys. So, yeah, sometimes I think it's all a show, but. Yeah, it's it's definitely interesting what he said. I don't believe Jimmy Garoppolo is a bad quarterback. I think he just needs time. He needs to, to remain healthy, be on the field. And I think right now, you know, the 49ers are kind of in that situation where they, they kind of want to win right now, which is kind of, a you know, a little bit of a, a head scratcher when you trade up to get a rookie quarterback when you're in win-now mode. So maybe they feel Justin Fields is – as their guy and he again if they want to win right now justin fields has to be the pick trey lance is going to be a two-year guy a two-year project at best mac jones you have no idea what you're going to get with him it's it's a bag of mixed feelings on him mm. so to me it's if they want to win now it's justin fields uh in this rookie class but again jimmy garoppolo i think is a good quarterback he just needs a better system that maybe fits him a little bit better can can tender uh kind of go with his strengths and I just don't know if he was ever really a great fit in San Francisco. On the line with his Panthers beat writer for Sports Illustrated, Skylar Callahan. Let me, okay, so I'm going to paint a picture for you. I, I want you to pretend you are general manager Scott Fitterer for the Carolina Panthers. Uh, one of the other storylines that's kind of been bounced around over the past couple of weeks is New England's willingness to trade up into the top 10 to get a quarterback if one falls down uh, to them. And it seems like Justin Fields is the one that they've kind of got their eye on if he drops. Uh, the issue is, he'll if he does drop, I don't think he'll get past Denver at nine or us at eight, for that matter. And here's the scenario that I have in my head. Let's say that Justin Fields is still on the board. Pick eight comes up. Bill Belichick calls over to you. You're Scott Fitter. Bill Belichick tells you, hey, I'm going to give you our first round pick this year, pick number 15, our first round pick next year, and I'm going to throw in Stephon Gilmore. Do you make that trade? Man, that's that's tough. <laughs> <laughs> Now Gilmore, for so for those that don't know, that are on the outside looking in, Gilmore is on the last year of his uh, his extension. Uh, the Patriots have not extended him. I think he's thirty two. I, I, I'm gonna go back and check that, but he's on the other side of thirty. But he was the defensive player of the year just two years ago. 
uh, and still a, a top quality cornerback. The Panthers don't have one other than Dante Jackson and Gilmore would be an immediate upgrade to, to Jackson and would form a pretty formidable tandem at cornerback uh, for the Panthers in the NFC uh, South in particular, where everyone's slinging the pill. Would you do that trade or would you pick Justin Fields? Cause you have that option also. So I think, you know, as crazy as it sounds, I think having competition at quarterback is something that Carolina desperately needs. And Ian Rapport said this the other day on the Rich Eisen show that it, it wouldn't be really that bad of an idea to draft Justin Fields. You have him, you would have Sam Darnold, you still have Teddy Bridgewater on the roster, as a, at least as of right now. And that's kind of what Scott Fitter and the Seahawks did out in Seattle. They kind of just kept swinging until they finally hit a home run on one of those guys, mm-hmm. Russell Wilson being that guy. So I don't know if that's necessarily the best strategy, but to me, the way I look at it, you know, New England, like you said, in years past, is not an aggressive team in free agency or in the NFL draft. They're pretty complacent, very conservative with what they do. But this offseason kind of changed. You know, they they felt like they had to go out and make some big splashes in free agency. And I think they feel the pressure of having to trade up to go get a quarterback because they know Cam Newton isn't quite the same Cam Newton that he was in Carolina, and he's getting older. They're going to need someone young that they can build around for the next 10, 12 years. So I think that they see that and think, you know what, if we're going to trade up, this might be the time to do it. And even though I don't believe New England will do it, I I still think that there's an outside chance just because they've already shown this offseason things are a little bit different. Um, But as far as the trade goes, you know, yeah, I, I would take it in a heartbeat because, you know, I like Justin Fields the most out of every prospect outside of uh, Trevor Wilson. But when you get two first round picks and another pick on top of that, or I guess was Stephon Gilmer, an established cornerback, I mean, that's really hard to pass up. You gave up a two, a four, and a six for Sam Darnold. So you got your quarterback. And essentially, in return of all that, you ended up getting an extra first round pick. So mm-hmm. yeah, I think that'd be a good move for Carolina. Uh, and that could be something that's out there. Um, people are starting to think that the Patriots might dangle Gilmore's trade bait to move up. That might be one of the few assets they have that they can add with a first rounder. Cause even with that first rounder next year, I don't think anyone thinks it's going to be as high as the one that they have this year. Uh, mm-hmm. so, uh, I think it would be a good move too. If that occurred, uh, Scott Fitter mentioned in that press conference that you were in last week that, uh, there's a quarterback that they do have. Uh, their eyes on. He would not say who that was, of course. Who do you think deep down it is out of, you know, take Trevor Lawrence out of it. Who do you think it is out of those four? And what's the likelihood that that one would actually still be there at eight? Yeah, well, <laughs> you know, after after the press conference or as it was happening, I guess, I, I kind of had a chuckle because I, I think there may have been a little bit of sarcasm in that answer. Maybe he was referring to Trevor Lawrence. <laughs> but, uh, no, I think in in all reality, I think he does. I think they do like Justin Fields. I think he he kind of fits their offense the best. He he would be a, a plug and play type guy in Joe Brady's offense. Maybe he obviously would have to beat out Sam Darnold and whatnot. But I think he's their best fit. Now they did work out with Mac Jones a lot during the Senior Bowl week. They really like what they saw in him. Again, I don't know if I would take him at eight. I don't know if I'd take him at all. Yeah. Um, but again, then you then you have Trey Lance, who's really intriguing because I think. He's probably the guy that's going to have the best chance to slip out of the top five. I think Justin Fields is going to go number three, number four, somewhere in there. Someone's going to trade up and take Fields. I just think that that's something that's going to happen. Trey Lance, there's a lot of question marks around him, a lot of question marks around the competition he's played, 
the the amount of games that he has under his belt at college and, and at the college level. So there there could be some interest from the Panthers and Trey Lance, but I think that out of all of those guys available, I think Fields is probably the one that they have their eyes on. They've said some really curious things uh, the past couple of days. Uh, they being the Panthers front office in particular about Sam Darnold and his contract situation. Uh, I have a theory. I've been posing it to uh, my Panther guests that have been on this week so far, just to get their reactions to see what they think or to see if I'm just flat out crazy. But I have a theory, uh, Skylar, that all of this is a ruse that Sam Darnold will never suit up for the Carolina Panthers. And if he does, it'll be for one year. And it's based on what happens on uh, Thursday night. So my theory is, the Panthers are content to wait to see what happens on the board. If their guy, Justin Fields, I believe, is sitting there at eight, they're going to draft him. Then at that point, they're going to have Teddy Bridgewater and Sam Darnold as trade bait collateral that they can send back off, get some of these picks back that they lost for uh, trading Darnold. I think they would be perfectly fine having Teddy on this team next uh, year with Justin Fields waiting in the wings or having Darnold and Fields compete and trading off Bridgewater. I think they're fine in either one of those scenarios, as long as there's that competition that you were talking about before. Um, the thing that keys me into them thinking like this is the fact that they have not extended Darnold on his fifth-year extension. And uh, Josh Klein from uh, the Riot Report, who was on with us yesterday, he had retorted with, well, do you think that's why they're doing that with DJ Moore? Do you think they're leaving it open to draft a wide receiver in the same scenario? Because they haven't signed him to an uh, extension either. And I said, yes, I think that's exactly what they're doing. I think they're trying to wait. They don't have to sign it till what, May 2nd or something like that. So they would be out of the draft. If Jamar Chase is sitting there at eight, you open it up where you can get him and not be on the hook for, you know, 18 million or whatever to pay DJ in year five. What are your thoughts on this? Do you think the Panthers are thinking that far ahead in terms of uh, not wanting wanting to be stuck with Teddy Bridgewater only next year because i think all of this <laughs> revolves around that notion that they do not they don't believe teddy bridgewater is a franchise quarterback and i believe it's coming from the top down i think this is a david tepper thing where yeah. he's like bring in these guys let them compete i don't care who you get we would have had deshaun watson if he didn't have 30 women complain about him being a bad person like he probably would already been on this roster by now yeah but since we can't have him let's put a plan in place so we ensure we have someone here that either can lead us for the next 10 years or can get us to the, the next year without us having to spend a bunch of money. Am I crazy? Or, or do you think that they really think Darnold can be the face of the franchise? No, I mean, I think your, your, your theory is actually pretty spot on because Scott Fitter is a really well thought out guy. He, he does his due diligence on everything. And I think you've kind of seen that in some of the other moves that he's made already and the moves that are going to happen, whether it's in the draft this week or sometime in the near future. But I think that's exactly the situation at quarterback because why lock yourself in to Sam Darnold when the guy that you may believe is the number one quarterback in the draft, or at least that's going to be available to you, could get to you at number eight. If -hmm. there's a chance that that happens, if you really think that he could be the guy that turns his franchise around, there's no reason to get to rush into, you know, exercising Darnold's fifth year option. I think they want to see how this draft plays out. And if, if it happens that Fields is off the boards and, and that's their guy, then, yeah, then they can go following the weekend after the draft. They can ex- exercise Darnold's fifth-year option. Next year's draft class, at quarterback is just downright terrible, so they won't really have their, their thoughts on that. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, and in terms of DJ Moore, I think it's the same thing because, like you said, if Jamar Chase is sitting there at number seven – or, excuse me, number eight, how do you pass up on him? I mean, yeah. I get they have Robbie Anderson, they have DJ Moore, they have all these other guys, 
But Jamar Chase is one of these wide receivers that just, I mean, he just jumps off the screen. He's a guy that only comes out once out of every 10, 15 years, maybe. Mm -hmm. Um, I I think he and and Kyle Pitts are probably going to be the two of the top three or four best players to come out of this draft. So, yeah, I think you're you're pretty spot on with that analysis. Well, that we're going to stop it right there then because no one agreed with me up until <laughs> no one agreed with me until I asked it to you. So we're going to we're going to crown you the Panther expert. Uh, my sure. my theory is probably going to pan out correct. Cheers and uh, everything to everyone. I think it's a good thing. I mean, if that's the case, it makes complete sense. And there's kind of a precedent for it a little bit with Fitter. I mean, they went and signed Matt Flynn from Green Bay to Seattle. And then in the same offseason drafted Russell Wilson and had him compete against him. He ended up losing the starting job before he ever really had it. So it's not like they're married to a guy when they sign him. Uh, and look at the deals, the deals that they have signed this free agency period. None of them are long-term deals. They're all one year, two year deals to like prove it young, hungry kind of guys. It look like, it feels like they're just kind of building some depth and they're going to, they're going to pick in the draft. I feel like they're going to pick in the draft, the positions we saw them sign in free agency. Those are the positions of need that they're going to be picking in the draft. Because the guys that they sign, it's going to be basically those guys versus these rookies they bring in. That competition that you were talking about at the very beginning of the segment. And then they can kind of decide, you know, very cheaply, which way they want to go with uh, with a lot of this talent that they're going to be picking. I do. It feels like there's a, a plan in place. I'm just trying to figure out what exactly that plan is. And I kind of feel like they've put it in front of us this whole time. And we've just been kind of ignoring it in terms of like what they want to do. They've been very clear about like what they're, they, what they've said from Tepper down, like what they want to do. And we just like, ah, well, no, they're, they're going to get a, a offensive tackle or something like that. And it's like, I don't think that's what they're looking for in the first round. I think they feel like they can build an offensive line wherever I, I don't, if Sewell is sitting there though, I, you know, I think that will cause them to pause. I don't think he'll be there at eight to be honest, but if, if Cincinnati was smart, then they would get them to protect their franchise. But th- it's, you know, it's Cincinnati. So <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. If that's good. I think Jamar Chase might be going there. Actually, I think that might be what they do. But um, <laughs> what, we'll, we'll end it with this. What do you think, Skyler, is going to be the biggest headline when we wake up on Friday morning when it comes to the first round of NFL draft in general? Not just the Panthers, just in general. In general. Let's see. So bold uh, prediction. You know. This this sound. If we're gonna get a really bold prediction here, I'll just go way off the rails because I know this isn't. This probably isn't gonna happen, but I'll just say just just for the entertainment value. And if I'm right, then I looked really smart. So yeah, yep. <laughs> San Francisco traded all those ass all those picks and assets to get up to number three, not for a quarterback, but for Kyle Pitts. Ooh, and I mm. and I, and I say that with. Um, a little bit of background from our, our 49ers publisher, Grant Cohn, a Sports Illustrated, who, who, when we did our Sports Illustrated team publisher mock draft, was initially going to put Kyle Pitts because, like he had said, like I had said earlier, they feel like they're in a win now mode. If Jimmy Garoppolo yeah. can have another dynamic receiver like Kyle Pitts, mm. maybe, maybe that's the case. I, again, that, that's. That's a long. <laughs> It'd be the highest, the highest of tight ends ever been drafted. I think that's a lot of it too. We're calling him a tight end, but he's really not. He's not yeah. really. He can play tight end. He played tight end, but he's really not a tight end. He's kind of a hybrid tight end wide receiver. And he even said that on first take uh, on Tuesday morning that he considers himself kind of a combo. Um, but of course, the team's going to want to pay him 
<laughs> like he's a tight end and not a wide receiver. So that's a pretty good one. I'll, I'll jot that down. We'll check back on it next time uh, we have you on to see if you're right or not. But uh, that'd be pretty bold. A tight end at uh, number three going to San Francisco and uh, Jimmy G getting another shot to to run everything for the 49ers. Uh, definitely follow uh, Skyler on Sports Illustrated for the latest on Panther news. It's uh, underscore Callahan. Am I correct? No, it's Callahan underscore. Yeah, Callahan. yeah, Callahan underscore. So at Callahan underscore on Twitter, definitely give him a follow. Always appreciate having you on, man. We'll have you back on to, uh, to clean up the aftermath of all this real soon. <laughs> Absolutely, man. Thank you for having me once again. Coming up, more from the franchise players on TobaccoRoadSportsRadio.com.